the next uh, three weeks, you will uh, not see Pastor Rob in this pulpit, um, and that's because he and his, his family are traveling. They're traveling uh, this next week uh, for some family vacation, then they're headed to a family wedding. Um, and so in the meantime, the we, we decided, well, what should we do then? How should we best bless the church in our time together? And we've decided to put the, the first Peter series on pause. And over the next three weeks, uh, Ryan and I are going to preach through uh, the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians chapter four has been one of the most meaningful chapters in the Bible to me personally over the last five years uh, because it deals with two topics uh, that are, are very important to us as a church. It deals with the topic of church unity, and it deals with just the heart of church life. What does our life look like together? What should it look like together as a body, as a church? So if you want to know what being a part of a healthy church should look like or feel like, or if you want uh, an inside track on what your elders pray for you all regularly, uh, look no further than Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, that's where we'll will be. The, the title of this small three-week series is called One Body, which comes directly from our main text today um, as we consider that we are called to be one. And so Pat's going to read that text for us in just a moment, uh, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 10. We'll look at the first 10 verses today. After that, we're going to hear from three other texts to help us understand what it means that we are indeed called to be one in Christ. And so Emily will come and read from Ephesians 2, which gives us some helpful background about what it looks like to be called of God. John will then come for us and read 1 Peter 2, um, 9 and 10, where Peter references God's call as just central to who we are as Christians. And then lastly, Kathy will read a short portion of John 17. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer where he's praying for all who will follow him, all who will believe in him, and he prays that his followers would be one. And so we'll, we'll hear that. And so let us uh, now turn our attention to hearing the word of God as these readers come forward. So Pat, would you come forward and get started, please? Ephesians 4, 1 through 10. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to be the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Ephesians 2, 4-10 but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. <clears throat> Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. John seventeen, ten and 11. And all things are yours. 
I'm sorry, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. All right, well, brothers and sisters, if you have a Bible with you, uh, would you please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be uh, bouncing around the text a little bit, and I want you to, to see where we, where we go. So Ephesians chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, there's probably a table of contents. In the beginning, Ephesians should be about halfway through the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we're entering exactly halfway into a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. Uh, that's where the book derives its name, the book of Ephesians. It wasn't published as a book. It was written as a letter to a people that the apostle knew, the church that he had planted, and we're entering halfway through that letter. So far, the apostle Paul has written three chapters to these Christians about the greatness of their salvation through Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1, marks a major turning point in the letter. So let's read again Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul's writing and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, brothers and sisters, the whole second half of the letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, flow out of that sentence. And in that sentence, those first three verses, we find a simple and yet profound vision of church life, of the Christian life, that Paul is putting before this church. It's, did you catch it? It's right there in verses 2 and 3. Christians are to humbly, gently, and patiently bear with one another so that the union which the Spirit has created between them is maintained and upheld. And so, in other words, the gospel, as Paul understands it, it does not produce divisive Christians. It does not produce lone ranger Christians, the kind of life that should result from becoming a Christian is a life of love and oneness and unity with other believers. Do you see that? That is the kind of life that should flow out from believing the gospel, from being a Christian. Now, before we unpack that vision further, which is kind of where we're going to end up, we have to make sure we understand the grounds. What, what is driving that vision of Christian oneness and unity? What, what makes it possible? What empowers that kind of lifestyle? And so look again at verse 1, where he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul's vision of, of the Christian life, this vision of unity and oneness, is driven by Christian calling. We see the word call or calling twice there in verse 1, and if you skip down to verse 4, you'll see it twice again. Verse 4 says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So the idea of, of calling is just central in Paul's mind as he writes about this Christian life of unity and of oneness. Why is that? What is it about our calling that so drastically reshapes our relationships together and the way we live? How does it prompt our unity, brother to brother, sister to sister, brother to sister? Well, put a finger in, in chapter 4, because we'll be back to it, and flip back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 1. 
I mentioned that we jumped halfway into Paul's letter, which is, if you think about it, kind of a disingenuous way to read a letter, right? If, if you wrote me an email and I just read the second half and thought, okay, well, that's what they wanted to communicate, you would think, well, Nate, what's up with that? No, start at the beginning. And so that's what we'll do with Paul. We'll show him the same courtesy. And let's look back at Ephesians chapter 1. You'll notice the first few verses are a brief introduction. And then Paul begins the meat of his letter to the church starting in verse 3. So let's pick up there and we'll read verses 3 through 8. Here is what Paul writes to them. This is how he begins his letter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So within the first few sentences of Paul's letter, this much is clear, is it not? Christians are immensely blessed lavishly loved by God, right? That's the whole point of what we just read. We are welcomed and adopted into God's very family. We have received a full pardon for all of our sins, past, present, future. If you are a believer here today and you sinned this morning as you woke up, you can have confidence that Christ's blood is enough to forgive you. Yet, all of this love, all of this forgiveness that God has shown us in redeeming and adopting us is actually driving towards something yet bigger. Look down at chapter 1, verse 11. It says, in him, so in in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Now pay attention to verse 13. We're going to come back to verse 13 a couple of times. It's really important to understanding chapter 4, okay? Verse 13. In him, you also, Ephesian Christians, that's his audience, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Okay, so so we've kind of bounced around a lot. Let's remember where we started Chapter 4, verse 1, what did we read? Paul urges us, he is emphatic to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I think there are three really big questions that rise for us to the surface, okay? Here's the first question. What is the call of God? And how does it fit into this life of blessing and forgiveness and love that we read about in chapter 1? Okay, that's the first question. What is the call of God? The second question is, can we get any more clarity on our ultimate calling? What what is this inheritance that Paul is speaking to? The third question is this. How does the life of unity that Paul's describing in chapter 4, verse 1, fit the calling of to which we have been called? Why is is unity at the top of Paul's mind as he thinks about our calling as Christians and the call that God has put upon our lives? So we're going to answer those three questions, Lord willing, and hopefully we'll see how this all comes together for Paul and how it should therefore all come together for us. So let's try to answer the first question. 
What is the call of God? What does it mean to be called by God? Well, you see, to Paul and the early church, the call of God was something very specific that happens to every believer, whether we recognize it in the moment or not. Notice that in chapter 4, verse 1, he does not say to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you may have been called with, or that, well, the most spiritual among you have been called with. No, he equates this calling to all believers. The call is common experience for all Christians. If you are a Christian, you have experienced the call of God. You have been called by God. We read in chapter 1 that Christians are chosen by God, verse 4, and predestined by God, verse 5, in eternity past. And so, in other words, God foreknew us with saving love. His eternal plan was not to save some vague group of people who might turn to him. No, he had specific people in mind before the foundation of the earth that he would save through the atonement that Christ achieved. And the thing that links us to Christ's atonement and and all of that forgiveness and blessing is our faith or, or us believing Did you see that in chapter 1, verse 13? This is why I said it was so important. Let me read it again. It says, In Christ, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Do you see that? When you believed in Him, you received the guarantee of your inheritance. And so faith, believing, is what links us to this inheritance that Paul speaks of. Now, if you are a believer here this morning, if you have been saved by the mercy of Christ, you've placed your trust in Christ, you've experienced forgiveness of your sins in Him, have you ever wondered how that moment of saving faith happened? Why did you, of all people, trust in Christ? Why were you saved? I mean, after all, aren't there there smarter people than us in the world who have not trusted in Christ? Are there not richer people in the world than us who have trusted in Christ? Are there not maybe even from the outside in morally better people in the world than us? who have trusted in Christ, how were we saved? And if we read our Bible, particularly the the Old Testament, we see that, listen, humanity is not bent toward trusting in God in the slightest, are we? I mean, we we are, from our, our, our very birth, it seems, suspicious of God's authority and his commands. We don't want him meddling in our affairs, And and as a whole, the human race would just prefer that God simply doesn't exist. In fact, that's kind of the major narrative that human history has spun. God just doesn't exist. If he doesn't exist, we don't have to listen to him. We don't have to worry about the impact that he might have on our lives. We don't have to worry about any accountability that he calls us to. The story of the Old Testament and of Israel is a story of people persistently leaving God, though he came close to them a thousand times. And you and I, I don't think, are any different, are we? And so how does anyone, in the words of chapter 1, verse 13, come to believe in Christ? How can anyone receive this inheritance? Why are there any Christians at all? The answer that the New Testament authors give us is that God calls us. The call of God upon the soul is a, it's a moment in time event with incredible spiritual power. Let, let me just, you don't have to take my word for it. I just want to read a few excerpts. These are all come from Paul, from his other writings to other churches to try to get our heads around what is the call of God. First comes from Romans 
chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. It says, those whom God foreknew. So he's, he's talking about people. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so notice, brothers and sisters, that the call of God is a vital step in how anyone gets to glory. Did you hear that? Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And so everyone who is foreknown and predestined by God, so think of Ephesians chapter 1, right? We we heard that in Ephesians chapter 1, is also called by him. And anyone who is called is justified, just means made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So there it is. The call of God. Now, the reason that God's call is such a vital step in that chain, a vital step in our salvation, is that without this call, none of us would see anything desirable in Jesus Christ. The call of God is what separates, ultimately, those who believe and trust in Christ through those who just see him as worthless, as irrelevant. Why would anyone trust the Christian message? The call of God is the distinction. Without that call of God speaking to the human heart, the message of the cross sounds like foolishness. It sounds like religious mumbo-jumbo. It takes the call of God to open our eyes and to see Jesus and to say, oh yes, he is better than anything. I do believe that he died for my sins. I put my faith in him. I will follow him. That kind of human response is the result or the effect of a hidden call of God to the heart. So, so consider, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, two verses, 23 and 24, where Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Or consider 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6, speaking of Unbelievers, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I would submit, let me just pause there. I would submit we were all there at one point. Okay, some of you, like me, grew up in a Christian home and heard the gospel for a decade or more, and it's like it bounced off of us. We had no interest. That was me for 14 years, okay? Blind, and we could not see the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, said, okay? We're talking about calling, calling his words. Who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear how the blind see? The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, says and shines his light into the human heart. And so this is what is happening. The the call of God that makes Jesus irresistible to us is what's happening behind the scenes in Ephesians 1.13 when it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You believed. Why was that? Because God called you. We heard it, a, a similar idea from Emily when she read Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to flip, if you're, I don't know if you're in 4 or 1 right now, but if you'll flip to the middle of 2, Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us 
together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. All right, here's, here's what I think these verses are telling us. There are two kinds of calls, are there not? Um, I'm not a dog owner. Um, we're not really a pet uh, family, but if you own a dog or if you grew up owning a dog, you probably called to that dog, right? You said, come here, boy, come here, girl. And what happened in that moment? Well, the dog heard your voice and they thought about it, right? And maybe they came and maybe they didn't. Depends on the dog, depends on the time, right? That's the first kind of call. Um, I call my kids, <laughs> and sometimes they come, and sometimes they don't, right? But there is a second kind of call, and it's, it's the kind of call that God um, is kind of in the habit of doing. It's the kind of call that Jesus made in John chapter 11 as he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, who had been dead three days. And he called into that tomb. He said, Lazarus, come out. And I would submit to you that in that moment, Lazarus didn't think about it. He did not wonder, well, should I obey that call or should I not? No, the corpse just came alive and Lazarus came out. Because there is a second kind of call, the second category of call, that when God speaks, the very words have the power to do what the call calls for. It is effectual. It yields an effect. And I think what we're hearing from the New Testament is that when we see the phrase, the call of God, it is in that second category. It is not in the first it is that second kind of call that has power to bring about the effect for which it calls for. When, when John Newton wrote, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, he was writing about the effect of the call of God to the human heart. That's what people say who have experienced God's call to salvation. I was once blind, but now I see. And so if you are here today, if you have heard the gospel and were inclined to believe it, or if right now you're hearing of God's saving love in Christ, his adopting love that brings us into our fa his family, that forgives all of, his, all of our trespasses, and you find that truth compelling and real, you are hearing the call of God. Yes, Paul preached the gospel to these people. And he called all of them to repent and believe in Jesus. What we're finding is that in that general call, God effectually calls those who respond. That means if you are here today and you are not a Christian, there is so much hope for you. Perhaps you come here this morning and you don't really find Jesus all that compelling. You don't think he has much daily relevance to your life. Or maybe you feel distant from God or guilty before God for things that you have done against him. You certainly haven't experienced this new life that we're talking about. What are you to do? Well, there is so much hope in getting the gospel in front of you, in looking again and again at who Jesus is, at what he said, at what he did, and asking him, Lord, would you open my eyes? God is merciful. He, he answers those prayers. And, and, and some people, well, they hear this inward, effectual call of God in a moment. It's, it's a moment in time like lightning striking. And they come alive. And for others, it takes days or weeks or months until they realize, yes, I really do believe that Jesus is my Savior and he has forgiven my sins and has called me to himself. But whatever case 
you may be in, Jesus himself urged us in Luke chapter 11 to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So don't, no one should feel on the outside looking in. We are invited to ask and plead with God to call us in this way, to open up our eyes to the reality of the gospel. This call of God that awakens the lost and that blind sinners might see how great a Savior Jesus really is. If that's happened to you, you have heard the call of God. Okay, so that's, hopefully that answers that first question. What does it mean when Paul talks about our call or our calling or that God calls us? It it means that he has spoken to our hearts through the gospel and awakened us to the reality of Christ. But now let's answer the second question. So remember again where we started, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in some sense, there is a call and there is a calling, right? If God's call is what awakens us to trust Jesus and live for him, well, what is the end which that faith is driving toward? What is God's call ultimately calling us toward? And brothers and sisters, I would just ask you to to get ready, strap on your caps, because this is where the Bible says stuff that is so good. It is on the verge of being unbelievable. Okay, so, so get ready. Are you ready? Okay, a few of you are ready. That's good. Do you remember... How Paul starts out this letter by talking about an inheritance that we believers have in Christ. Look at that again, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, meaning you you experienced the call of God, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Okay, now flip over to Ephesians 2, because we want to ask, can you give us some clarity? Can you help us understand, Paul, what is this inheritance? It's kind of a strange way to talk. What do you mean that Christians have this inheritance waiting for them? Look at Ephesians 2. We'll start again in verse 4, but we'll keep reading a little further. This is where we started last time. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, there's the call again, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, now keep going, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's here's where you need to hold on to your hats, okay? Verse 7. Why has he done all this? What's the point? So that in the coming ages, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. The call of God awakens people to the reality of Christ and puts them on a new track gives them a new calling. It gives them a new position. They are now the eternal recipients of all the good that an infinite, all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God can show to them. You see, when the Bible speaks of eternal life, that's kind of one of those religious phrases that Christians throw around. We should throw it around. It's all over the New Testament. When the Bible speaks of eternal life, it is not speaking of life as we now know it, just without death. Eternal life is a life so abundant and so full and so rich from God that it takes an eternity to exhaust. What a letdown just today's life without death, would be compared to what the Bible speaks of your future, brother or sister. 
God has saved you. If you are a Christian, God has saved you, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. And, and so the Christian's hope, the, the Christian's hope is not that we, well, we might secure some measure of God's kindness instead of his wrath for our sins. Like, like okay, we, we deserve, we know we deserve hell because of our sins, and so we won't get that, and, and so he'll be kind to us. No, that, that, that's not what we're, we're saying here. This, this passage is, is saying, it's like if you wanted to feel the full force of the Colorado River, what you would do is you would stand in front of the Hoover Dam and say, take away the dam. And the full force of that river would rush upon you. It would overwhelm you. It would kill you. What this passage is saying is that God is going to take not a dammed up river, but his infinite goodness, his infinite kindness, and he is going to shower it upon his people for all eternity. Similar, this is an aside, similar to the Colorado River, if you experience that now, it would kill you, which is why God is going to give us new bodies, but that's a separate sermon. You, brother and sister, will experience the full weight of God's endless goodness, kindness, pleasure, love. And that is huge. And you will experience that as he pours it out on all of his people forever. And I'd submit that this is where we start to see the connection between our call and calling to the life of unity that Ephesians chapter 4 starts to unfold. Our calling as Christians is not an individual calling. It is a corporate calling. God will not lavish all of his goodness on independent individuals. He will lavish it upon a people that he is calling together one by one. So turn back to chapter 1 for just a moment. I want to show you a really strong implication that this is the fact in what Paul says in chapter 1. Go back to look at verse 11. And 13. He's talking about, as he talks about this inheritance, he talks about two groups of people receiving this inheritance at the same time. So look at verse 11. He says, in him we, by which I think he means Paul and, and the apostles, the, the first to trust in Christ, because he says that in verse 12, the first to trust in Christ, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And then skip down to verse 13. In him you also, Ephesian Christians, When you heard the word of truth, later you were sealed with the Holy Spirit and were guaranteed that same inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Do you notice that? We. Until we acquire possession of it. And so I think what Paul is saying here, what he is saying here, is he's saying, yes, I trusted Christ before you, and now you have trusted in him too, We will receive God's eternal goodness in full measure together with the people of God. Do do you catch that? Paul's waiting. He, He knows that this inheritance is waiting. And so as long as the gospel is proclaimed, more and more people are called to partake in this inheritance, but not one of them will taste it until we have all come in. And that's when Christ will return. And so, yes, our calling is nothing short of receiving that infinite goodness from God forever, but not alone. Heaven will, will not be, if, if this is what you're expecting of heaven, I'm, I'm so sorry, but there is better news. Heaven will not be a you and God moment forever. That's just not the picture we see in the New Testament. What picture do we see? Well, it's, it's this massive, perfect city. One person doesn't live in a city. A city's meant for a multitude. And, and that's exactly what we see. A multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping God before his throne. Your calling, brother or sister, is to be a part of that city. To be included in that multitude. And it will be greater than anything you or I can now fathom. 
So do you see how, how when we see our calling and, and the call of God upon us rightly, how that just flows right in now to Ephesians chapter 4? We have about 10 minutes left. We're ready for our main text. Turn back to chapter 4. Paul's point here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, is that your call and the calling to which you have been called are so unspeakably great. They should profoundly impact the way you live, particularly regarding other believers. So your call and calling are so unspeakably great. They should profoundly impact the way you live, particularly regarding other believers. Notice in verse 1, Paul is not giving us a suggestion. He is urging us. He is imploring us, exhorting us, admonishing us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so you and I, as called people, as as part of God's called community, are meant to walk in a manner worthy or fitting with the calling to which we have been called. Now, we don't need to get tripped up over those words, uh, manner worthy of. Um, don't, don't misconstrue that to say as if we were worthy of the calling. That's not at all what Paul means, and that goes completely against the first three chapters in which he's written in our call, right? We are called despite our unworthiness of being children of God, of being forgiven of our sins. So, so what what that word means when he says walk worthy is he means live in a way that reflects the position that you've been given in Christ. And so think of it this way. If, if a person is appointed to be a judge, it doesn't matter so much what their previous profession was. And if they've already got the appointment, it doesn't really even matter if they've earned that appointment or not. What matters now going forward is that they act like a judge that they live in a, wor- in a manner worthy of a judge, that they hear uh, cases without bias, that they make rulings fairly, that in general they stand for justice and equity. So whatever their past, they are now expected to walk worthy of their position, worthy of a judge. And, and Paul is using a similar way of talking about Christians. We are to walk worthy of this calling that we've been given by grace. If you look there in verse 2, he names five qualities that are fitting for us who have been called together in one body by God. The first one is humility. I I learned that um, before the New Testament, the Greek word there for humility actually didn't exist. The New Testament authors made this up, and that's because in their time, no one thought humility was a good thing. It was actually talked about as, as one of the worst qualities a person could have. You were supposed to boast about your accomplishments because if you didn't, who would? But here we find an entirely different way of life. Literally, the word means low-mindedness or meekness. And this is fitting because it's nothing about us that got us our privileged position. It's nothing about me that qualifies me as a son of God. It's, it's this calling that we have received through God's free grace that led to our inclusion in this body, in this people. And then we see gentleness. Anyone who has been called by God knows how gentle he is. He could have condemned you and me a thousand times over. He had every reason to be rough with us, and yet God gently and warmly calls us to see him as he really is, to be a part of his people. And if he, the Lord of all, is so gentle with us, how can we be harsh with one another, right? Third, we see patience. God has been remarkably 
patient with us. You might see that in your own life just as, as an individual, right? The, the, there are probably moments in, in your life where either you um, kind of put your fist in the air at God, were angry with him, were sinning against him, and yet you experienced his patience. I would also just invite you to consider how patient he's been with the human race. Do you know why your Bible is so long? Because God has been incredibly patient for generation after generation after generation. And so we, his people, who have been on the receiving end of so much patience, are called to be patient one to another. Fourth, the fourth quality is bearing with one another in love. The word to to bear with actually means to suffer long with. And if if that phrase doesn't remind you of the Savior, I don't know what would. Did he not at the cross suffer long in love toward us when he hung for our redemption, bleeding for sinners? We hadn't asked for him. He freely did that. He suffered long with us in love. Do you and I, like Jesus, suffer long? with other believers, because of your love for them? Or do we, or are we prone to grow weary of them? Praise God that Jesus does not grow weary of us. He has suffered long with us because he loves us. There is a day coming where every person in this room who is a believer in Christ, you'll look around a room like this, And there won't be one person that has sinned against you, that has annoyed you, that is a burden to you. But let's be real, right? Here and now, we are still sinners. We are still weak. There are moments that you will be a burden to one another. There are moments that you will annoy one another. There are moments that you will sin against one another. And yet, because of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus, we are to suffer long with one another. In love. You may even have to suffer long with your pastors. We are, we are not excluded. We are weak and we are still sinners. The last quality there in verse 2, actually it might be in verse 3, is an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now that's a mouthful, right? What does that mean? Well, first, notice that Paul is not urging us to create or fabricate some sort of unity, right? He doesn't say, be unified as if you are not unified. He says to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are to guard it. We are to um, safeguard what has already been created by the Spirit. Now, we didn't look at this, but if you just glance back at chapter 2, verse 22, he writes, in Christ, to, to this church, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so I think that's exactly what he's referring to here in chapter 4. The Spirit has built us together through the call of God, and that's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit who unifies us, who breaks down um, these hostility between people groups or um, different factions of people because we've all trusted in the same Savior. That's what the Spirit does. Our job is by the Spirit to not let worldly differences and disagreements tear apart what God has joined together. You may have heard at weddings, let what God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, this verse proclaims that over the church. What the Spirit has joined together We are to guard and maintain. So those are these five qualities that that speak of this unity and oneness that we are to have one to another if and when we understand our call. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, I don't want to pretend that those five qualities 
are easy to live out. They are hard. Uh, Paul knew it. He faced division and heartache in the church. And at any point in church history, you can see plenty of examples of how difficult living in a manner worthy of our calling is. Our own church has faced very hard times. We, we walked through a very unfortunate church split only five years ago. And so we see our own weakness, right? This is hard. But despite our own weakness, I think Paul would say, there are many reasons to press on. In chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul lists seven sources of oneness that we share in Christ. We don't have time to linger over these, but let's read them. You can count them if you want. Chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so oneness is baked into the very fabric of God's design in saving a people for himself. Do you hear all those ones? What that means is that when we feel weak in our unity, when we might be offended by a brother or sister, when we realize there isn't really much love in my heart, I look around the people in this room and, well, I don't dislike them, but there isn't the kind of love that would cause me to suffer long with them today in my heart, we can run to Jesus. Jesus himself prayed, we heard it from John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father is one. Are one. As he and the Father are one. When his people echo his prayers back to him, can you imagine how eager he is to answer those prayers? He will not turn a deaf ear. In the end, as verses 8 through 10 of chapter 4 say, we are but former captives who are called by his grace. The one who descended to die for us is now seated at the right hand of God in the heavens. Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning over all things. God has called us and made us part of his one body, his assembly, his church. And and we here at Providence Church We simply exist as a partial expression of that great and glorious body that God has called every Christians everywhere to be part of. May God help us here. And and if you are a member here, I would just urge you, as Paul urges his hearers in Ephesus, I would urge you, pray for this regularly, that we here would be a local expression, a partial expression, a true reflection of the church to the praise of him who called us.